Good evening and welcome to Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. I'm Lauren from the still lockdown UK and with me tonight as always is... It's Brian in the slowly starting to open New York, USA. Mm. Are you starting to open at least? Yes, um, but because um, we have... Because the UK is made up of... um, Four countries, um, England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland have some devolved uh, powers, which means we don't open up the same time as England, which is good because each each of the countries has different geography and that poses um, a lot of different issues. Like um, we have a lot of coastal communities and... um, country communities so you know they're remote and um we get a lot of tourism so you know you can imagine if we were to open up too quickly and invite the tourists back um it would cause chaos you you do realize we have 50 states (laughs) yes yes i i know and each of your states are open up opening up differently yeah, um, unfortunately not necessarily based on safety or logic. A lot of times it's just based on political ideology. But we don't want to go down that rabbit hole today because there's been so much, um, let's just say, political strife going on in this country now. I think 2020 should be scrambled up into a ball and thrown in the bin. Yeah, we're not even halfway there yet, and, I'm, and I've had it. I'm done. <laughs> It's like, yeah, I'm going to put the Christmas tree up and start wishing for New Year's Eve. And I do want to tell our listeners out there that uh, we uh, had the pleasure of being guests on a show. No, that was amazing. Yesterday, yeah. We were on the Talk to Q show, um, Quincy's show out of Jackson, Mississippi, USA. And uh, we got to discuss history, a little bit of what's going on in the world now how it relates. Apparently, I was obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what's new there, Brian? You're always obnoxious. Yeah, that's what I've been told. You even you even forced him into admitting that you're obnoxious. You forced the man into saying you're obnoxious. I did. You, you put pressure on him. <laughs> <laughs> I think he had fun with it as much as we did. I hope so. It was great. Yeah, so that'll be up uh, very soon. I think in the next couple of days that'll be posted, and we'll uh, put a link to it on our sites and our uh, social media platforms, which we should give now real quick. Yes. Um, our email, so... of course, is trans.history.rambling at gmail.com, and our Twitter is history. And Facebook is History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. And our Instagram is at History Ramblings. And feel free to reach out to us. uh, Comments, suggestions, anything. It's all welcome. And speaking of which. (laughs) Speaking of what? We've got some good comments that I've received from the last episode we did with Kurt and Krista of the Stranger Sessions. That's fantastic. Everybody loved Kurt and Krista. Oh, I love them too. They're great. They, uh, there, there wasn't one negative comment. Well, 
There was one, but I don't think it was negative, so to speak. It was constructive. It could be looked at that way. <laughs> someone, <laughs> someone did email in and said, ooh, you mentioned you're having uh, Professor Turi King on the show. Maybe Brian can send her a DNA sample and we'll prove if he's a Sasquatch. Well, that is kind of your own fault. I, I mean, you have photoshopped your head on a Sasquatch. <laughs> I, I have. You've confused people with your photoshopping skills. But we, we did have a couple people say that uh, the show was wonderful, it was funny, they were thrilled to hear Kurt and Crystal let their hair down a little bit and, uh, so, uh, and show their humor. But we were warned against saying the name Zozo so many times. Apparently, Zozo's going to possess us. Um, no. Yeah, I'm not too afraid of Zozo. No, I think we're okay. <laughs> I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure Zozo's got bigger fish to fry. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> he's probably just hiding from 2020 at the moment. Like, no, no, this is not the year for Zozo. Yeah, Zozo says that, that this this place is messed up. Uh, yeah, I've done my work. <laughs> I'm a demon and I ain't going near this shit show. Yeah, I'm, he's gone on sabbatical. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, yeah, we've had a lot of fun lately, despite all this uh, tragedy going on in the world. And Yeah. Oh, did you hear that? That was a Star I did. Trek communicator. That is was that, foreshadowing. That, uh, that, that was that day. It, it, that was just foreshadowing of tonight's special guest. Yes, the man who wrote the book on the science of Star Trek. Yeah, tonight is the night that Professor Lawrence Krauss will be joining Transatlantic History Ramblings. Lauren, this is like one of the greatest minds of the 20th slash 21st century. I know. I'm so excited. I'm going to ask him about Pluto. Oh, no. You, you bring Pluto up all the time. You brought him up. You brought, brought the poor little thing up on Quincy's show yesterday. I mean. Do you dare me to ask Krauss about uh, Pluto? I don't need to dare you. I know you're going to do it. <laughs> but we're also um, going to have Physics Dave on. Oh, you're going to embarrass Physics Dave. Well, Physics Dave, you know, might be a little fanboy because, I mean, let's face it, uh, you know, he's a physicist and a cosmologist. And Lawrence Krauss is the theoretical physicist that all of the work that Dave does is based on. I mean, that's a pretty big he's, deal. He's the king of dark matter. He is. And uh, we're going to hopefully discuss that. We'll be discussing, uh, I know he's got a new book coming out. You know, his last book, The Greatest Story Ever Told So Far, is one of one of the most fascinating books I've ever read in my life. Um, and anybody who's seen any of his lectures or, or heard him discuss the book, A Universe from Nothing, it, it's, it, it's mind-blowing. It's, it's life-altering stuff. But we are going to get to him, I promise people, but we do have to do our Today in History because... Uh, yes. Uh, that's what our show does. Okay, so it's my turn to go first, I it think? Is, it is your turn to go first. Oh, I just guessed that. So, um, 
Mine is from 1039, and that's Henry III, otherwise known as the Black, or the Pious, was made Holy Roman Emperor on this day. I so thought you were going to say Henry III, otherwise known as Trey. <laughs> I know I'm a jerk. <laughs> otherwise he's known, or known to his friends as Barbara. Known to his friends as Hank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hank. Well, uh, oh, it could it could be it could be hashtag exclamation mark these days. Who knows? I think that's what people name their children now. <laughs> Isn't it something similar to what Elon Musk has, has named his? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, Elon Musk had a big week. Oh yes, the the rocket, the. the yeah, successful launch of SpaceX. Was- they made a wise choice that day yeah. to leave. <laughs> it was it was awesome. I don't, did you get to watch it? I did, yes, but most I didn't post anything on Facebook because most of my Facebook friends were waiting for McDonald's to open and wouldn't have been interested in a kid. Well, people have to have priorities. I know. I mean, let's I face it. That uh, what is it? That steak, egg, and cheese bagel at McDonald's. That's pretty damn tasty. We don't have those. Oh, you don't know what you're missing. No, no, we don't have those. We have, um, we do have muffins and bagels, but nothing near as adventurous as steak and cheese. Oh, steak, egg, and cheese bagels at McDonald's. Wonderful. They don't even sell beer at our McDonald's. No, they don't sell beer at ours. Oh, they do in Spain. Well, that's because you got to be drunk to be in Spain. <laughs> no, you don't. Spain is a marvelous country. I know. I've I've always wanted to go to Spain. I've never been there. Mm, there's lots of places. Like, when you went to London, you didn't go to anywhere historical, as we worked out from our conversation with Alison, where you just spent your time in casinos. I, I went to historical places. Mitre Square and the White Hart do not count, Brian. Ten bells. I went to the ten bells. That doesn't count either, Brian. I, uh... Neither know, does I did crossing the, the road and Neither does cro- that counts, but going to the Ten Bells and then crossing the road to the Sp- to Spitterfields Market doesn't count. Oh, I didn't go to the market. It's pretty cool in there. <laughs> I, it's a market, but... I did go to um, the Natural History Museum, as I said. I went to uh, Royal Albert Hall. Torch Eric Cap- Clapton, I to remember. S- to see Clapton, and uh, you know, I did a lot of historical things. <laughs> Like, um, well, I spent three days just taking the tube to all different sections of London and going all around. Had to check out Piccadilly Circus, of course. But there's nothing there. No, it's exactly the same as something we have here called Clifton Hill. It's identical. It's no, there's nothing there in Piccadilly Circus. I mean, I mean, it's just a big TV wall screen. Yeah, and it has. On the sort of corner of it, it has a Ripley's Believe It or Not. I, I, I went to several pubs. That, that's not historical. I uh, They were old. They were old pubs. Um, I spent a lot of time in Hyde Park, actually. That is a pretty amazing place to spend a day. You can actually walk um, through, through all the parks. They're all connected some way. I did see something fascinating when I was there. Me and my brother were walking through Hyde Park, and there were a group of students 
Uh, I don't know if they were university students, but they were. They had a rugby ball, and they were attempting to play American-style football with it. Did you correct them? Well, we sat and watched them for a few minutes, and we're like, you know, this is pretty funny, because you know it's so different to their culture. They don't know the sport, but you could see them trying to play it, and I'm like, should we go over and teach them how to play it? And my brother goes... We're three times their size. We're going to scare the shit out of them if we go over there. Well, yeah, that, that, is, that is true. Yeah. But uh, it was interesting. It was fun. Ooh, but we I just do... realized I never did my day in history. No. Well, I'm not going to go to 1026 or anything like that. But I'm going to a pretty significant day in history. June 4th, 1945, is the day that Great Britain, France, the Soviet Union, and the U.S. agreed to divide up occupied Germany. They did indeed. This is also the anniversary of Winston Churchill's arguably most famous speech. Yes. Which is funny because they compared Trump clearing out the crowd so he could go pose with a Bible in front of the church to Churchill's speech. <sighs> the White House press secretary said it was the equivalent of that. Does he realize that when Churchill made that speech and he was saying, we will fight them on the beaches, yes. we will fight them in the streets, that he actually believed that that would be the outcome, that we would be invaded and that we would actually have to fight them on the streets. Yes. When he made that when he made that speech, Churchill was trying to prepare people for the inevitability of an invading force. Do you know what? I really wish the White House was haunted and that Abraham Lincoln would like get so fed up and start doing some poltergeist crap. Are we sending Zozo to the White House? No, no, they they don't need Zozo. They just they have Abraham Lincoln haunting the place up. He just needs to start doing some poltergeist <laughs> crap. But like I said, I don't want to. I don't want to talk about the bad stuff and the, the frustrating stuff, and I don't want to bash our president because we got such a great show coming up that it's going to be so much fun. I was just trying to make it humorous by saying I think we really need to, to unleash the paranormal. Well, we know Abe Lincoln was a vampire hunter. Ah, actually, if you've read the book... Abraham Lincoln is a vampire, not a vampire oh, spoiler hunter. Alert, spoiler alert! So you, is he in the film? I've, I've read the book, but not seen the film. I, I have not seen the film. I have better things to waste my eyesight on. Oh, but the idea of, of Abraham Lincoln being a vampire is pretty cool. Yeah, but you know, I think when that movie was on, I was in a casino or something. Oh, dear. <laughs> You're just waiting for the casinos to open, aren't you? Oh, I'm so excited for casinos to open. Oh, so excited for casinos to open. You're just waiting for your nephews to go home. I'm in the home. But you're waiting to go home from your nephews. Yes. <laughs> well, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to get Physics Dave, bring him on. We'll do a little yeah. chit-chat before I get us with Professor Lawrence M. F. N. Krauss. 
Lauren, this is a big, big, big deal to me. <laughs> I know, I know. I can, I can hear you getting fanboy. I mean, this is you, to science nerds like me, and you know, this is like I can't talk to Newton, I can't talk to Einstein, but I can talk to Lawrence Krauss, and we're going to in a little bit. We are indeed. But can I just say one thing? Is it about casinos? No, it's about another of your heroes and the fact that today is his 80th birthday. Whose birthday's today? Tom Jones. <sighs> Tom Jones, happy birthday, Tom. I would sing this song, but I don't want to pay royalties. Tom Jones, <laughs> 80 years old today, and he still looks better than I do. He's, he's probably still trying to work out who threw those pads at him. Did you see that he already announced on his website tour dates for when Corona's over? Of course. Tom Jones is the toughest motherfucker alive. <laughs> Corona's not going to get him. No, he's Tom Jones. Right, so what do you think we try to reel in Physics Dave and bring him on? Absolutely. All right, let's see if I can get him. There he is, Lauren. I found Dave. Dave, welcome Yay. back to Transatlantic History Ramblings. Hey, Brian. Hey, Lauren. Thanks for having Hello. me back. Very welcome. And uh, Dave. What's that, Brian? You know what today is. What's today? Today is June 4th. Otherwise known from here on out as the day Lawrence Krauss came on Transatlantic History Ramblings. We have Lawrence Krauss coming on the show today? The Lawrence Krauss is going to be coming on the show in just a couple minutes. Dr. Lawrence Krauss? Yes. Well, I'm. hopefully I won't be speechless when we get him on the phone, but I'm a little speechless right now. Uh, I can't tell you how much I admire Dr. Krauss. Well, I want to ask you a question about that. Are you going to be okay for the first time in your life not being the smartest guy in the room? <laughs> in this instance, it's actually fine with me. Um, <laughs> wow. Gosh, I'm going to have to think about what I want to ask Dr. Krauss because... This is uh, quite the opportunity. I mean, how many people can say that they've had a chance uh, to speak to basically the smartest human being uh, alive today? Yeah, you know, I said that to Lauren earlier that the amazing thing about this is I, I, I can't talk to Einstein, but I can talk to Lawrence Krauss. Right, right. Um, you know, I was lucky enough. I had the pleasure of, of meeting Carl Sagan before he passed away. Yeah, you told me that story, I think, once before. And this is as every bit as exciting to me. We're, we're talking... Now, correct me if I'm wrong here. You can arguably say Professor Krauss is the greatest mind of the latter half of the 20th and the 21st century. Yeah, you could definitely make that argument. You know, there are a very... There's a very few, of a small handful of guys that would be in that conversation, in my opinion... And uh, Professor Krauss is one of them. He, his work, and I can't wait to ask him about this. I absolutely cannot wait. But he did some really important science uh, back in the uh, the middle of the uh, the middle of the nineteen uh, nineties. I think it was ninety five that he published a paper uh, that ended up putting him 
on the map in the physics community. Um, he predicted the, the, the precise level of what we call the vacuum energy or what's been, been come to be called in, in uh, sort of common parlance today is dark energy, right? Everyone's heard the term dark energy. And, and what we're talking about when we say dark energy is, is this vacuum energy. It's this remnant leftover energy that's left in space when you've taken everything else away. If you remove all of the particles and all of the radiation, so there's nothing in there, there's nothing but empty space, it still seems to have this leftover remnant energy. And Dr. Krauss successfully predicted the value that that energy would have. Uh, he didn't know it at the time. He was making a prediction in 95 that would later be vindicated. Uh, and so, gosh, what an opportunity to ask him what that must have felt like. Yeah. You know, but um, and, and then now to this day, you know, uh, he that that work has sort of paved the way for so much science in modern cosmology. Yeah, it's amazing. It's like my brother says, theoretical physicists envision things that we don't know that oftentimes turn out to be correct when us normal people can't envision the things right in front of us. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was a, in, in Krauss's case, it was like a known unknown. You know, it was this thing that we knew was there it, to some level, this, this dark energy. We knew that at, at the point that he made the prediction, there was lots of observational evidence to suggest that there is this leftover energy in empty space, that, that there is this vacuum energy. But he, he was able to, through theory and observation, sort of nail down the value that it must have. And then we were able to take some additional measurements and show that he was correct, uh, so it's, it's, uh, th that must have been an incredible feeling to be vindicated that way, you know? Yeah. And this ain't April 1st, Dave, we're not lying. He's really going to be here. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past you to pull something like that on me. Would you, would you actually believe Lauren would do that? I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past you, but <laughs> Lauren would never do that to me. No, I wouldn't do that to you. No, no, Lauren would never do that to me. Yeah, so I'm really excited. I, I have so many questions uh, for Professor Krauss. I mean, I, you know, we've talked about string theory on the program. I'd love to ask him what his thoughts are about that and how they've changed over the years. Uh, I'd love to ask him, um, you know, about uh, so, some of his books. He wrote this awesome book called A Universe from Nothing. Uh, yes. It received a bunch of criticism and stuff, uh, you know, in, in the press and from philosophers and theologians. But he his arguments were sound and, and I really would love to hear his take on the, on the criticism that that book received. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah. That's one of the books I'd mentioned earlier before we got you on here, uh, that and, uh, uh, the greatest story ever told so far. That's right. Which was yep. incredible. Yeah. Um, and of course, Lauren's favorite, the physics of star Trek. <laughs> Such a good book, you know, uh, he's so, he's so good at communicating, scientific ideas to, to people who are, you know, fans of science and want to know more about these things and want to understand some of these ideas. 
And Star Trek is a great example of a, of a fictional program that like brought scientific ideas to a mainstream audience. And uh, so then that book of physics, the physics of Star Trek sort of really elaborated on some of these things that we saw in the program. And it was a excellent book. Yeah. It, 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 was, it was so much fun. Um, and he's got that unique ability that a lot of scientists don't have of being able to explain these incredibly complex things so that laymen like myself and Lauren, who, you know, we're educated in other areas, not science, but he makes it so we can understand, which is one of the reasons we bring you on the show. You have that ability too. I'm going to start calling you Lawrence Krauss Jr. (laughs) I'm not worthy of the title. Don't, you know, you'll get uh... there. (laughs) Yeah, he's very good at it. He's a he's a he's a communicator of science. You know, he's uh, one of his. I think he would agree with this. Is that I think one of the one of his projects is is the public understanding of science, and he's put himself in a position to be able to communicate science to wider and wider audiences, and uh, so it's just so awesome that he would take the time to to hang out with us for a little bit. Yeah, and and I'm gonna have to ask one favor of you. Sure, what's that? When we bring him on, do not scream like a girl at a Beatles concert. <laughs> I will try to contain myself. All right, because I am going to be bringing him on in just a moment. So strap in and prepare yourselves, people. Professor Lawrence Krauss is coming up now. All right, and Dave, Lauren, I have Professor Krauss on the line with us. Professor Kress, thank you so much for coming on to Transatlantic History Ramblings. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you virtually, somewhere above the Atlantic. Absolutely. And, and before we begin, I, I want to make sure you're safe and well and everybody uh, everybody's okay there during this time. I think so. <laughs> I'm safe and well in my study right now with my dog next to me. So uh, I guess for the moment I'm fine. Well, I know you don't have much time, but and we're just so honored to have you on. I'd like to introduce you to Physics Dave, Transatlantic's resident physicist and great admirer of yours. Uh, Professor Krauss, thank you for coming on. It's an honor to talk to you. Oh, well, it's a pleasure and an honor to talk to you, too. I'm, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I uh, was really looking forward to this conversation, and I uh, was going to take all this time take all of your 20 minutes to tell you about my quack pet theory of the universe. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, that's good. No, it's easy. It, you can continue because I have this, this disconnect button that really works great. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Do you still, do you still get email like that a lot? <laughs> oh, no more than maybe five or 10 a day. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Well, that's that's uh, a problem you've had for a long time, I'm sure. But uh, you know, it's, I mean, the point is, yeah, it, it's it's a problem. It's it's not a bad problem to have, and uh, and some people are just earnestly have questions. I mean, I like to try and help out when I can. So right, it could be worse. One one question I have is about uh, like I wanted to give the listeners a sense of what you what you did for cosmology, and I'm referring to the paper that you wrote in '95 with Michael Turner. Uh, the, t- the title of this paper was The Cosmological Constant is Back, and uh, it, it made a prediction. Would you, mind, would you mind telling us about that paper and the prediction that you made there? 
Sure. Yeah, it was a paper two years in, in the in the preparation because I had to convince my co-author that that it was right. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I would have liked it even to come out earlier, but it, it made a what it did was look at all the available data from cosmology at the time and argue that there's something fundamentally wrong, that the data wasn't consistent if the universe was the universe that people thought we lived in, that the data required it looked to require that in fact the universe, the dominant energy in the universe was an energy residing in empty space, now called dark energy, that 70% of the energy in the universe resided in nothing, literally. It's crazy. Um, it was something that Einstein first allowed in his theory and then said it was the greatest blunder he'd ever made. Um, and, uh, and, it, and it really was a crazy idea. The reason that we, I, I proposed it particularly was I thought, well, I thought it was so crazy that what really was true was that at least some of the observations were wrong. Because since the observations weren't consistent with each other, I thought showing that you were required to have this crazy energy would convince the people perhaps that maybe some of the observations were wrong and had to be redone so that that craziness would go away. But much to my surprise, it was right. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, and about three years later, two teams of, uh, uh, two large teams of observers, one of whom, by the way, I lectured to at Berkeley, a few years earlier, and they said they were going to prove me wrong, which was fine. Um, uh, but in, in the end, uh, they proved us right and um, and discovered that indeed, by looking at the rate of expansion of the universe, that the universe was dominated by dark energy, and it turned out to be exactly the amount we predicted, which was really kind of crazy. In fact, I think I said to a reporter at the beginning, the first time I really didn't believe it was when they discovered it, uh, because it was so crazy. Um and, uh, yeah, and they went on and won the Nobel Prize for that discovery. So it, it's changed the, the world. Right, right. And so it's interesting to hear you say that you that you weren't necessarily that confident in the prediction, at least in the value of, of the vacuum energy that you gave in the paper. Is that right? Well, I mean, I, I was confident in, in the numbers, but, but I was what I thought was that, you know, if all the data was right, the, our prediction, I was very confident, uh, was, was correct. But... But I just felt that the observations on which that number was based, some of them were probably wrong, which is why we come to that crazy conclusion. And right. I, I think it's right. important to be self-skeptical. But we, I published it because I thought it would help people um, see the conundrum we were in. And it was really kind of interesting. The response was, was uh, I gave several, a number of lectures about it uh, around the world at Caltech and other places. And and people would usually sort of smile and laugh and snicker and say, yeah, that's interesting, you know, but it's obviously wrong. And, um, <laughs> and um, yeah, so, and I can't say, and I, as I say, I think the observer, actually the observers weren't, weren't motivated to do what they were doing by our paper. They just were looking at, looking at the expansion rate of the universe over time. And they knew that they would see something that disagreed with our prediction. Um, they were actually looking for something quite the opposite. And, and they were they were shocked, and um, and uh, I'd like to say that you know I caused them to go out and do something they wouldn't have done. That wasn't the case. They were going to do it anyway. They just didn't expect to see what we predicted. And so um, so I think, uh, but it was really amazing because by the time they measured it with with predictions like ours, the community within a, within a month accepted this craziness, and um, it was really kind of remarkable. So it was nice to be right. It would have been nicer nice to. Well, anyway, it was nice to be right. Let me put it that way. <laughs>
Yeah, I mean, I, I've always, I've imagined it as, a, as the moment that every scientist dreams about, you know, to be vindicated in that way observationally. Um, yeah, no, you know. exactly. It's what, it's what Feynman once said, the prizes and stuff, they're one thing, but it doesn't really matter. What's really neat is a, is, is a pleasure of finding things out. And it was really, it's one of a few times in my life, but well, probably the most dramatic, obviously, where I thought, wow, in the, you know, I, I was really the first person to understand how the universe worked. And, and it's, and it ultimately it's, 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 it's incredibly satisfying. Right. You, you mentioned Feynman there and, um, Professor Krauss, you wrote a, an autobiography of, of Richard Feynman. You've described him as as one of one of your, you know, I don't want to use the word idol, maybe, but um, someone you've looked up to very, very much. And I fear in physics that we his approach to physics and his approach to life and to science is uh, is not one that's like all that well su- subscribed to these days. Why was he so special to you? Finally? Well, I mean, he was oh, he was special to everyone. He was a remarkable individual, not only incredibly charismatic, um, but a wonderful lecturer. Obviously, he impacted on the way I, I, I explain things. He also was partly responsible for my being a physicist in, in his public in his in the books that were based on his lectures. Uh, they had a big influence on me. One of the reasons why I write uh, for the public, it, because you know I hope to do you know I know I have, and it's nice to do for some young people what what he did for me. But his um, his approach of honesty and 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 trying to understand things his own way, but but um, in a kind having fun with it, and yet having an incredible power and insight was just just uh, amazing. And and I think he, um, you know, he, he his his enthusiasm was infectious. I think good teachers. I've been a teacher for a long time, and I think I don't have the illusion that I really teach so much as motivate kids to learn for themselves and his his enthusiasm was infectious and certainly impacted on me and it's kind of and the fact that he he what what was really important about for fine moves is honest and honest about everything yes when it related to science and he wanted scientists to be honest with themselves and others and he and for him as any good scientist it should be the vindication was was an experiment, was connecting with nature and and being willing to be proved wrong and and not, you know, in hype and wild comments. And he also was politically not correct. I think if he'd been around now, he probably wouldn't have survived. Right. Yeah, yeah that might be true. But I think the more, most important thing was him him insisting on 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 this uh, willingness to to uh, connect with experiment and rule things out if they were wrong and not um, overflow with with uh with hype about things that are just wild speculation which unfortunately mm. happens a lot right what, what i find so fascinating is you're talking about Feynman and uh to someone like myself who is not a scientist i come you know from a history background but i've always been fascinated with science and that's thanks to um people like you know julius sumner miller who was always on tv teaching science to to yeah. kids and and then yourself being so personable with you know, lectures that the common person could understand and enjoy and become fascinated with. Me and Dave were talking about this, that uh, I said it's so incredible that Professor Krause is coming on because, you know, he inspired me to, you know, care about science more. And Dave's response was, yeah, he inspired me to get my doctorate in cosmology. <laughs> well, I look, that's, I mean, all of that's, I, it means a lot to me to hear that, obviously. It really does. I, um, that's one of the reasons why I do what I do, and 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 
I, I do, you know, I do what I do because it's what I do. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, I was influenced by people, obviously, like Feynman. As I say, I think it affected my lecturing style, among other things. But, but um, I think uh, it's so, so exciting that for me, there's, uh, it's a pleasure to be able to reach out. And, and, and when I hear it's impacted on someone, it's just, it, it's just uh, um, means a tremendous amount. It's nice to know. And yeah, I probably do it anyway, but it's nice to know. <laughs> well, so you you just mentioned the uh, you know that Feynman's approach uh, to sort of be careful about the hype that certain ideas can get. Uh, it makes me think about uh, we we've talked on this program about string theory before, and you've been you've been uh, very open about your views about string theory, and uh, you know sparred with the likes of Brian Greene on stage in the past about. The, the empirical future of string theory, whether there is a future for it or not. Uh, has there been any developments in the last five years or so that have maybe made you rethink your position about that field of, of inquiry? Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, I, yeah, I think, I, in fact, in some sense, one, I, one of my books, um, Hiding in the Mirror, was really in some sense a explanation of why people were interested in string theory. I mean, it was well-motivated, and it follows a long history of fundamental particle physics uh, and extrapolates it. And so it's not as if it's um, it's pseudoscience or anything like that. Uh, it just hasn't, hasn't, uh, hasn't done what it would claim to do, you know, what people hoped it would do. It's been disappointing in that sense. But right. it's produced a wealth of mathematics and math some of the mathematics has been very useful in other fields of physics but if anything in my opinion what's happened with string theory is that it's devolved more and more in and become more confusing it looked like it was well defined and it could in principle lead to results even if those results couldn't be compared with experiment but now it's it's clear that string theory isn't even really a theory of strings it's more like brains, and 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 it doesn't doesn't clearly lead to unambiguous predictions, uh, and and it and it's not even clear what it is now. So people, it, it, people, it's led to mathematical insights that people try and use in physics, and um, and a lot of claims are made about it, and there's some beautiful results. But what's fascinating is that it's not clear that any of it relates to the real world. That may. It certainly may. And 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 they're tempting suggestions. Um, uh, but but you know, and it was Feynman who said it. It said theory, you know, most of the time string theory just has to make excuses. Huh. Uh, it, it, in my mind, while while it has been fascinating, the how can I put this? W while it's been fascinating, it has not addressed any of the key fundamental, it's not resolved any of the key fundamental problems that I would have thought a theory of quantum gravity would resolve. In advance, one always assumed that, first of all, quantum theory of gravity would explain this crazy energy of empty space, the cosmological constant, why it has the value it has. And string theory completely missed that. Not only does it not predict it, it doesn't explain it, and on the whole, most of the cosmological results coming from string theory predict quite the opposite. Um, it, it hasn't yet resolved the, the conundrum of black hole evaporation. 
the kind of questions, see, these are the kind of questions in quantum gravity that are open questions in, in physics that, that, are, that are fascinating and that are, have led to more and more research. But as of yet, string theory has made only tentative directions in, in that regard. And, and, and again, I'll quote another friend of mine, it was another Nobel Prize winning physicist, uh, Frank Wilczek, hmm. who said, string theory is promising. And it keeps promising and promising, <laughs> and and it is, it is probably, you know, there's lots of fascinating stuff, but it certainly hasn't yet um, lived up to its to to the early hype. Um, but right. you know, there are a lot of smart people working, and it's it's kind of sad though that for a generation of young people, the kind of many of the kind of questions they asked became mathematical questions, and I think, as I put it, actually in a recent piece I just wrote, a, 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 not an obituary, but a reflection on the Freeman Dyson. Mm. I pointed out that when we were at the Institute of Advanced Study together, and I spent a year there, I used to have lunch with him every day, and um, and there was a table of string theorists, and, and you know, all around Ed Witten, who was who was a friend, and I knew him, and, and I know him wow. still, and, and but he had this set of acolytes, and for most, and, and Freeman never sat at that table in general, because he mostly couldn't, even though he was an exceptional mathematician, Got lost in the in the in the, the 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 twenty new papers every week that was coming out. And, but the saddest part was for most of these kids, um, our universe was just a boring example of what were much more interesting mathematical universes that could exist. And, mm. and that was unfortunately a mentality that occurred. That you know, it's, who cares about this universe with these experiments? They're much more interesting universes. And um, and that sort of was a sad reflection. I think with with some of the recent interest in black holes and the failure to explain other things, the string theory community has on the whole moved more towards trying to figure out the craziness of black holes than trying to develop a fundamental theory of quote, everything they've stepped back. And, um, and therefore at least, at least those young people are, are considering something that's almost phenomenological. It may be a, a Gedunkin experiment about what happens with black holes, something you'd never be able to measure, but at least it touches base with the universe in which we actually live. Right. That's right. That it was the seemed... answer to your question, and maybe most <laughs> listeners won't understand what the hell I was talking about, but that's <laughs> the way it is. Anyway. Well, I, I, I understood, and I can uh, maybe digest it for them a little bit, but um, the it seems to me that many who take string theory very seriously also put a primacy on mathematical elegance almost as a necessary component of a physical theory of a, of of a, of a theory in physics it's got to be it's got to be beautiful it's got to be mathematically elegant and if it is that is an additional reason to think that it might be true um i think even i mean you would know better than i would but d that even steven weinberg sort of um puts primacy on on mathematical beauty and elegance in that way um in a very different way steve weinberg has been driven by and i worked with him and i was a student of his and and uh and he's a good friend um but his 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 all of his work has been driven by by trying to understand um explanations of, of of real experiments and, and so it's mm -hmm. true he, he's written about it is ultimately true that mathematical that physical theories have become more mathematically elegant as we try and understand the the the, the world at ever more fundamental scales but for weinberg elegance alone 
even though even though he might talk about it, would not be the criteria. And, and Feynman, again, to go back to him, made a big point that a theory, no matter how elegant it is, it doesn't matter if it doesn't agree with the experiment. It's wrong. And 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 you're right for a generation of young people who were doing mathematical physics in a way they couldn't connect with the real world. The decision of whether they were doing good work was often determined by how complex the mathematics was or how elegant it seemed. Mm-hmm. And and. And that's unfortunate, you know, if in the short term, maybe that's useful, but in the long term, it's unfortunate because it gave the impression that mathematical sophistication was what defined a good theory, and it's not true at all. It's What defines a good theory is something that predicts nature, the way nature works. And, and that's nature is the ultimate arbiter of whether a theory is good or bad or beautiful or not. And no matter how elegant the theory is, if it doesn't agree with the experiment, it's ugly from a physics point of view. Right. And nature may, it just may be the case that nature may not be mathematically beautiful in that way. But right? no, I, I suspect, no, I agree with, with Weinberg that ultimately when we understand things, I suspect the, the explanation will, will be seen as mathematically elegant. But it doesn't mean every mathematically elegant idea is right. I think that's <laughs> right. the point. And, uh, yeah. um, you know, and ultimately, you know, we, we'll, we'll see. Uh, and who knows that that's my way. And who knows if, if there is even an ultimate theory, there may not be. And that's okay. As we just want to learn more about it, uh, uh, more about the world every single day. That's all. Just want to know a little bit more. And thanks to you, we do learn a bit more every day of the universe. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I, I try my part, but, uh, it's just fun for me every day, uh, that I can learn something new is, is nice. And I, I suspect it's true for most people. They just don't realize it's true. They've been it's been so they've been so beaten up over physics and other things that they don't remember how exciting the aha experience really can be. <laughs> well, I, I think uh, there's there's one one thing that Brian and I have been arguing about. Um, I've tried <laughs> to explain tried to explain to Brian. Uh, will you, uh, Professor Cross? Will you please explain why Pluto was demoted? <laughs> <laughs> Some things have no reason. Um, exactly, because Pluto's still a planet. <laughs> no, I, you know, it's it's just an arbitrary definition what a planet is. And I, I, I think in one of my podcasts in the in the, the Origins podcast, Lawrence Krauss, which I, which I hope you link to, um, I. I um, I, I talked to uh, uh, one one of the heads of the uh, uh, of the, the project that went to Pluto, and um, and uh, I uh, when we were talking about it, so he, he 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 the his whole program was to go look at Pluto, and 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 he's a planetary scientist, and as he Certainly pointed out, for him um, Pluto will always be a planet. Because the, the idea was simply. When the when the only nine planets we saw were included Pluto, Pluto seemed a, a reasonable um, uh, a, a a reasonable candidate. But um, one, what happened was, as we began to be able to explore the solar system more, various objects in the Kuiper Belt and and beyond uh, beyond Pluto, lots of objects that were as big as Pluto began to be discovered. Uh, well, not lots, but a few, and. Um, and that led to the realization that maybe Pluto is not so special, and it and therefore, if we want to call it a planet, we have to call the others planets. So maybe we should demote Pluto to be a dwarf planet or some other name. And there are criteria by which a planet is determined to be a planet, and Pluto fulfills many of them. 
if you want to hear the details, the guy's named Alan Stern, and 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 we had a great conversation about why for him Pluto's a planet. But it was really the the um, um, and and he pointed out many of the planetary scientists don't even buy that distinction. But it was really a question of where you draw the line. Well, I mean, you know, planet is a is an arbitrary human definition, and uh, and by an accident of history, Pluto was discovered before those other things. And um, and uh, and so, uh, as I say, for me, the major criteria was the fact that my daughter in her fourth grade did a project on Pluto, and she's now an adult. But I certainly didn't want her to have to go back to fourth grade to redo that project. <laughs> no, see, 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 y'all thought I was crazy. I think he agrees with me. Pluto's a planet. Hashtag pro planet Pluto. Pluto's been no. grandfathered in, and it stays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Also, it also allows me a good chance to have fun with my friend Neil deGrasse Tyson. So. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I know you really got to go. You're running out of time, but I have one more quick question. If I well, could. let me give you a quick answer. I don't know. We'll go a little longer because there's some oh, point other than the facetiousness of worrying about whether Pluto's a planet, which you know doesn't mean much. But it it, it relates to something again. I keep harping back to Feynman, but a really important point. Feynman talked about when he was a young man, his father took him in the woods and, and he was looking at birds and he said, what's the name of that bird? And his father said, well, you know, the name doesn't matter. What matters is how does a bird behave? What, what, you know, how does it reproduce? What's its, what's, it, what's its relationship to other things in the ecosystem? And that's the key point. The name really doesn't matter. What matters about Pluto is the dynamics that form that system and how we can by learning about it, learn more about our solar system. So names really don't matter. I mean, a rose by entering the name is still a rose, but calling it a rose doesn't mean anything. Learning about what a rose is is much more important. <laughs> okay, so now you can ask me your, your last quick question. Because <laughs> that was, I, I, my jaws dropped. I'm like, it's, he's, he's right. Yeah. Um, of course. That goes without saying. That's true. <laughs> So you're going to stop asking every guest now if Pluto's a planet? Uh, yeah. No, of course not. <laughs> so, you know, an, another hero of mine, uh, the late Christopher Hitchens, once described you as his own personal physicist, which is what I use Dave as, my personal physicist. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, he described me in a lot of different ways. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, do you have no, one no, good Hitchens? To be fair, he was far too complimentary towards me. I always told him to call, to to cut it out. But he, for some reason, smoke and mirrors that somehow. He, anyway, he was he was very kind and complimentary towards me. It was actually, to be fair, it was actually me who called myself his personal physicist. <laughs> it, what happened was, just to be clear, right near near when he died, uh, I was at his house and. Um, and I was there one Sunday morning, and a number of interesting things happened. I actually talked about it. I gave a, I gave the speech at his at his memorial service, and I was quite honored when his widow Carol asked me to do that. Um, and and a number of things happened that day. But one of the things that happened was a doorbell rang, and I went out, and uh, so, and someone at the door came out with a with a package in a manila envelope and said, "Are you, are you Christopher's manager?" Or and I said, "No, no, I'm his his personal physicist." <laughs> <laughs> So we, uh, Professor Krauss, we really appreciate you taking the time. And just one last time, I'm just going to say that for what what Feynman did for you, you have done for me and for many, many others, I'm sure. Uh, so I just wanted you to know that. Yeah. Well, thanks. It means a lot. And I'm, 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 
I'm glad to hear it, and I'm glad you got to say it. As you know from reading my my book uh, on Feynman, one of my great regrets is, although I knew him in, uh, when I was younger, later on when I was lecturing at Caltech, and I really wanted to tell him about the impact that he'd had in a different way and remind him of our time together. I didn't get a chance to for a variety of reasons. Some young, annoying assistant professor kept asking me questions and didn't get away. And I, and I thought uh, I'd have time later to talk to him, and I didn't, and he died shortly afterwards. So it's, it's nice to, to be able to reach out. I appreciate yes. it. Okay. Yep. Thank you so much again, Thank Professor you. Krauss. Okay, take care, good luck, and uh, okay. and uh, send me the link to this when you can, and I'll try and promote it. Okay? Absolutely. Oh, Thank yes. you very Thank much. You so much okay. Professor take Krauss. care. Take care, all of you. Okay. Good night. Great. Bye-bye. All right. Well, <laughs> what did you think, guys? That was amazing. I mean, I really, I, I hope I didn't, I know it's your show, I hope I didn't dominate the conversation, but... No. Um, no, that's I think you were here for. Yeah, I think that went really, really well, actually. Yeah, it was, bit, it was very fascinating. It's amazing. It, you know, had he even gave us ten minutes more than he really had. <laughs> right, right. It was very kind. Guy. I know that, and th- that's kind of the reason that I was not going to interject when we were talking about some of the more complex things. You know, he he, um, he went on at length about a couple of the questions there. Um, about about string theory, he mentioned he like did some so he mentioned some names in there that most people probably won't be familiar with. But I could, if you want, we could do a sort of post mortem uh, for the listeners if you want to, you know, to spell out some of the things that he sort of just dropped in there. Yeah. Um, if you think yeah. that that's necessary, I mean, yeah, we'll listen to it. You know, um, I just didn't want to interrupt him and tr- start clarifying and do do my own talking when he's got 20 minutes and he's Lawrence Krauss. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah. No, absolutely. we can do that. We can we can do a part two or. Uh, we'll we'll do um, like an addendum or something. You know, content. like after he hangs up, we can sort of just talk about what we talked about. You know, well, we're and still maybe talking on air, Dave. <laughs> I suppose that's true. No, what yeah. we could do is do a little bonus content episode to, to release after this called, you know, uh, Physics Dave Explains Kraus for, for Dummies. Yeah, so, you know, tomorrow or another day, maybe. Yeah, yeah that, it, just just incredible to have a, a, a guest like, like Professor Kraus on. And, uh, it is. I know, uh, I think we just gave uh, Dave some, some, some serious physics street crit. I can't wait to tell the guys at the university about this one, man. This uh, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Uh, Not when for, you hang out someone. with Lauren and Brian. Right. right. <laughs> Next is going to be Brian Cox. <laughs> Next will be right? Brian Cox. We're, I'm going after Richard Dawkins. I'm going after Brian <laughs> Green. Man, you're really tugging at my heartstrings here. But uh, on that note, since it's very late in Wales, as you can hear, Lauren's a little sleepy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's half past midnight. Yeah, but you know, when she goes to bed, she's going to be having dreams of physics, Dave. Stop. <laughs> I believe uh, we're going to rename him Dreamy Dave. Uh, I kind of like physics, Dave. Yeah, you leave him alone, you meanie. I'm not making fun of him. <laughs> I'm sensitive, Brian. You told me once before that uh, I said something about a show that we'd done with Dave, and she said, well, Dave is much better looking than you. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Which I love. Yeah, and wasn't it when you showed me his picture? Went, oh, he's so dreamy. Yeah. <laughs> and then, ooh, you look like Sasquatch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Brian and I are about as far apart on the on the spectrum as you can get physically. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. We're yeah. very mutton, Jeff. <laughs> oh. Yeah. But on that note, folks, I believe it's time to call it in a, a night. So. Yep. And. I- I will remember this one for a long time, guys. Thank you so much for this, you both of it. you. Yeah, we couldn't have done it without you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy to help. Brian and Dave in the wonderful Buffalo, New York, and from Lauren in the UK. Good night. Good night. Good night. And he's going to come along and kick your ass.